my boy. That's pure speculation. One would wonder. One would wonder. Now this is a rogue philosopher here, trying a, something new here, a little bit shorter, um, just to increase the material and the breadth of the material that I'm covering. We'll see if, if you all download it or, or not. We'll determine whether or not I keep going with it. Um, so having said that disclaimer, it may or may not be worth pursuing. But I had the idea, uh, something along the same lines as a rogue philosopher reacts. I was thinking of one called rogue philosopher speculates, where uh, if I have anecdotal ideas, not so much based on studying philosophy or being a philosopher or whatever that might be, uh, but just just sheer speculation, anecdotal speculation, where I'm not basing this so much on anything scientific or statistical or philosophically analyzed, but where I'm just speculating on the possibility of something being. <clears throat> now, obviously it's going to do with philosophical content in a way, or anecdotal, my experience of different material in popular culture. So my first thought initially was, I like to read a lot of horror fiction when I'm not reading different philosophy type stuff or scholarly stuff about esotericism or what, what the case might be. Um, I've been noticing in a lot of horror fiction, and I don't know if this is in fact an actual trend or if it's something just that I'm disproportionately noticing. There's certain horror fiction I tend to gravitate towards more than others. Now, in a lot of the horror fiction, there have been several trends I've noticed that have been constant. And they seem to go along two lines that I think are interrelated, but slightly different, but interrelated, where horror is a violation of cultural norms, usually, or it's a violation of expectation. It's a violation of the security of someone's home, for instance. Or it's a violation of hospitality, uh, the Victorian era. Count Dracula. I mean, granted, he's a vampire, he drinks your blood. And we can go into all the feminist analyses of uh, the woman being half under the thrall of Dracula or this or that. But I tend to think that primarily the horror from Dracula is derived from violations of expectations of hospitality. You know, welcome to my house, okay, and all of that. Now, he doesn't do anything on the surface that's in violation of how you would behave towards a guest, uh, except that he's very distant and he seems to be somewhat imbalanced. You know, he, he provides well for his guest, he feeds him, he's warm, he has a nice fire going, except that all the way out to his home, his castle, Harker's hearing the wolves all uh, in the forest and, you know, the coachman is kind of spooky and the, the people in the village are like, don't go there, don't go there. You know, it's sort of a violation of, of hospitality. Now, in the same way, our, our horror fiction does the same. Now, a, according to more modern trends, I think it's, it's the, the fiction is steering in a direction that's directly influenced by uh, our, 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 the structure of our society. The, the entertainment is reflecting our social structure. And what are we having to deal with? There are two <clears throat> trends that connect to social media. One of them is the un understanding that 
you're constantly under observation. <clears throat> whether you like it or not, whether it's the NSA or not, whether that pisses you off or not, it's a fact. There's always someone's iPhone going. There's always someone on Facebook. They're always sharing their pictures. They're always, you know, look at me, look at me, very narcissistic kind of leanings. And what is it about social media? From my understanding of it as an outsider, I don't use social media. You can tell that. Um, there appear to be two trends that are, are pervasive across all social media, whether it's chit-chat or TikTok or Facebook or whatever the fuck they're called now, uh, uh, Twitter. I mean, all, all these social networks, there's, there's several things going on. One of them is that you're always trying to put your best foot forward because you're constantly in a situation of, of social naivete. Like when we meet new people, it's instinctive to try to put our best foot forward and, and theirs as well. And it's our, our wish to come across as positively as we can, uh, you know, no matter how we're doing. Uh, and which makes sense because you can't go around telling everybody how miserable you are unless you're deeply and profoundly depressed and haven't any control over acting in such a way because you'll turn people off. So social media, people aren't actually meeting or ever going to meet. But they build a profile and they try to put their best, their best foot forward. It's a media. It's about imagery now. It's about packaging. It's about public relations. Because these people are always on the level of strangers. Even though people like to talk about their, their Facebook friends or their, you know, I think they're far more realistic to be warm and loving towards their, their Patreon subscribers. I mean, that makes a lot more sense. If these people are actually giving you money to put out your content, you owe them more than just your content, you, you owe them some semblance of thanks as well, because they are, in fact, supporting you. They've decided that whatever your content is, informational or entertainment content or otherwise, that it's worth exchanging money for. And if it's worth exchanging money for, then it's content with value. We've done this for our paintings and our, our books and our, our films. You know, why not individuals on an individual level selling their content entertainment-wise, mostly entertainment, or in, in my case, entertainment and informational, as a means of, of sharing a product that derives from the, the intellect. Um, a lot of the people that I admire most are uh, readers. They just go online and they read stories, and they have, whether they're voice actors or not, uh, over time they certainly become voice actors, or they're, they're actors in films, or they're whatever it is. Uh, voice actors usually trying to get their content out there and build an audience. Uh, the new model is to build your audience before you really start trying to sell something. So that way you have proof of concept. You have an idea that there is a niche for what you're doing. <clears throat> and these these are kids, right? These are young kids compared to me, especially their kids. And I have a, a tremendous admiration for them because, you know, they read a new story every few days or every day. And some of these things are long and they're complicated stories. And it's wonderful to me on two levels because on the one hand, these kids are building careers out of essentially nothing, you know, because they're able to sell their voice reading. You know, whereas before you would have had to have gone to, you know, some, some company, uh, uh, Random House Audio you know, or Blackstone Audio or so. You would have had to have been a hired voice actor with proven concept reading best-selling work. You would have had to have been reading S Stephen King or something. Um, 
Now, Stephen King pioneered this in a way himself when he first read his own works, when he read The Gunslinger and when he read The the Drawing of the Three and um, the, um, oh, whatever the third book was in that whole series. But the idea basically was able to take hold and take flight because of the internet, because of the ubiquity of, of the internet. And we've increased our bandwidth uh, we continue to increase it almost on a an uh, exponential level, and now we have the idea where anybody who wants to you can just put content out and there's nothing stopping you except market forces i mean even even still, even if you're not really making any money off of this thing initially, you can still as long as you have a functioning computer or an iPhone or an iPad or something, you can put content out there and it can be about any topic that you wish, that you feel that you have enough insight into to share and have something useful to say. And of course, there's a lot of people out there who are, you know, sharing stuff that's not. Um, and the way even even they eventually acquire enough of an audience to, to continue to pursue, because it's very, very, unless you really want to try for higher production values. Like eventually, I want to increase my production value. Right now, there's really nothing going for me production value except for Chris, who's, you know, does pretty hard work. He edits the stuff. He goes through and makes the beginnings and the end, and you know, the spooky music. The, the he finds different uh, pod safe music or what have you. But it's very low production value. I'm sitting here on my deck with an iPhone for Christ's sake, you know, and there's no picture. And a lot of these kids, as they're putting out their readings of their spooky stories, you know, they're doing stuff with film-level production value, where they're shooting. You, you have a visual track. You have something that's animated, or you have sound effects that go along with the story, as well as a visual backdrop. They're doing other things. They're not, to me, I'm blind. All I know is that they're just reading stuff. I like hearing their voices. It's, it's a godsend for me. The second level where I, I admire these kids is a lot of these writers have become best-selling writers through their work. And they may have started on something like a fanfic site, like Reddit, you know, creepypastas, you know, but they've expanded now to uh, being best-selling writers. And a lot of these writers, when they do their short stories, they're of a high, of a high quality. They're of best-selling quality short stories. And so when you have a really good reader, really high production value, they've composed their own music, some of them, and you have a visual track that's also entertaining, and you have a good story that's read really well, <clears throat> you, you've got classic entertainment now. You've got something where you could spend a few hours of your day on your ride to work or whatever it is. That's all going to change now because of COVID-19. You know, but you're, you're always going to have time to have an Audible subscription and listen to audiobooks. Or you're going to be able to go onto YouTube or, or um, different pod sites uh, and listen to these podcasts. It's, it's, an, it's pretty incredible. And if one is able to, I mean, I, I one day would like to be able to myself to pay some of these kids back. Because especially getting my PhD, I had to have entertainment or else I would have gone stark raving mad. And... In enough cases where it matters to me, being able to listen to this stuff at the end of a long, long day, you know, that, that made all the difference in the world for me to be able to 
uh, to be able to maintain my, my mental balance and my sanity. Now, granted, some of these stories, I mean, a lot of these kids are, they're real troopers, right? They start writing these things when they're teenagers or something, and they, they put them out on these fanfic sites. You know, every few days they have a new story. It's, it's pretty remarkable. And they've been doing it for 10, 20 years, some of them. You know, they're still young, they're still in their early 30s, but they've been writing horror fiction for like 15 years. Um, and some of the earliest stories that came out when the whole thing with Slender Man, uh, in, in that time, the early, uh, early 2010s maybe, late 2000s, when Slender Man came out, you also had stuff like Jeff the Killer or, uh, I don't know, I don't remember them all, Jane the Killer or something, you know, where, uh, where you had these, these horror stories that were, were obviously, they're not the highest quality. They're not, you know, Ben Drowned. I mean, come on. These aren't going to be classic stories, except that they're classic only because they began. It was there when they, when they started it. But no matter where these stories are on the continuum, a lot of them draw upon the same ideas. And it's from social media, I think, where you have... Um, Several aspects of the monster that I think are pretty, uh, they're key. Um, on the one hand, it's the appearance of the way the monster looks. And the other is what the monster does. Now here's where I'm going to draw it back to social media and to these trends that I want to speculate on. Trend number one, the watcher. Okay, We're being watched all the damn time now by the NSA, by the social media network types, by companies who want to sell us things. They want to build a profile to sell us advertising. <clears throat> There's a reason that they have some of it's benign, some of it's maybe a little sinister, but they, everyone is watching us. And you're putting out your social media profile. <clears throat> you're being watched by your friends. You're being watched by your, your acquaintances. Uh, you're being measured, your worth, your number of likes. You're, you know, it determines whether or not you're... Now, to me, that's, that's a dopamine addiction. If you really want to demonstrate to someone that you're liked or you want to ask for likes, if you're putting out high-quality material at a high production value, start asking for a donation. If people want to give, they don't have to, but if they want to, you know, then so be it. That, that's, that's how you determine likes in this day and age because everybody's... It's a, it's a pure capitalist market now, and everybody is scrabbling for to make a name for themselves, to literally make a name. And that's a good thing. I think it's a noble thing. I mean, the likes and the thumbs up and all that, that helps. But that's mostly to build a profile for the social media engine. That's not, that doesn't really help the user except their morale. Uh, the one putting out the content helps their morale. For me, I suppose the number of downloads is all I require for, you know, what do I need a like for or a thumbs up? You got to download. You may or may not like the thing. If I ever get a social networking thing up, then you can all yell at me, you know, like uh, eventually, you know, and I'm warning in advance because that way you all can, you know, tell me to go screw myself or whatever. Uh, because in a couple of years, maybe in another year, I have a projection period in my head. I think I'll know when I've reached that point where I'm going to start asking for donations from how people other than the esoteric order of the Luciferian lobster, right? You know, where if you want to contribute a dollar, 
a dollar a month, a recurrent Patreon. I mean, I'll feel like I'm, I've earned the right to start asking for that and not feel like a total imbecile <clears throat> when I've put out enough content to justify such a thing. And I feel like the content is of a high enough quality to justify starting to make a request. You know, if I were a musician out on the street, uh, never mind the stereotype, but I'd want change in a cup or something. Uh, put some change in the cup. Yeah. The musician in the middle of the subway station. They, some of them play beautiful music. So the one hand, uh, the monster's watcher. And they usually invade your home. They, they are hiding in your closet. That's the classic one, of course. Or they're hiding under your bed. And, and, and there's always a sequence where uh, these kids put up a, a digital camera and they watch right back. And they record the monster's movements. Oh my God, this monster, it's, it's, it's the rake. Oh my God, it's, you know, it's, it's hiding under my bed. They're watcher. They usually have big black eyes. Usually their eyes are disproportionately large in their face. And the horror comes not just from the, the screwing up of the proportions we expect, but they screw up because they're violating your privacy. They're watchers. <clears throat> and the second one, of course, I've mentioned the eyes. The monster also has a gigantic smile. And this appears to, appears to be a pretty ubiquitous. They're always smiling. They're always describing the face, or they have no face, but that's a slightly different tack where the smile is this vast, disproportionate, monstrous smile. Their face is ripped open. They usually have too many teeth. I think the reason for them to, to smile at their intended victims, whom they usually want to consume, they want to eat them in some way, is that they have too many teeth, and it, it's in all cases a, a disproportionate <clears throat> facial expression. And the horror derives from it, its violation of expected norms. You know, usually it's it's a monster. It's a monstrosity. It's a, the monster. Mostro is the Italian word. It's it has to do with size, with things being gigantic, um, or uncontrollable. Something you you can't predict. It's not within norms. It's not within boundaries. It it violates boundaries, and so these things are 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 in some way they they're too joyful. Now, what what is social media? You're always excellent. I mean, no matter how you feel about the president, his speeches are, are, and his tweets are a good example of the distortion of social media. Everything is always a superlative, whether it is or not. Everything's always absolutely great, fantastic, everything's so fantastic, you know, and whenever there's something he doesn't agree with, oh, it's horrible, it's disgraceful, it's the worst thing you can have, blah, blah, blah. And I'm a fairly, at this point, I'm a fairly strong supporter of the president, but however you feel about about President Trump in this election year. Everything he says is built on these superlatives, and that's, I think he's responding to his audience, to his social media. He's responding to the spirit of the times, which, which is to exaggerate, and especially in that American optimistic, um, uh, pragmatic, you know, but it's America, so everything is always absolutely great. Everything has to always be absolutely positive. Everything always has to be the best that it can be. It's like, no, no, no. Most of our lives aren't, you know, and especially social media influencers. And I don't know much about them, but, you know, they've always got to be in beautiful locations. And they've always got to be wearing this apparel that, that looks spectacular. Now, now, granted, if you're a model... Okay, and if, if, if you can pull this off, I'm, I'm not against people doing that. I think that, in fact, it's almost, it, they almost ought to be 
demanded to do that. Okay, but but still, that's probably got to be hard on the on the person doing it because everything is not always great. They don't always look beautiful. They're not always doing really well. You know, sometimes what they're living is is a total fabrication. And in a way, that's the American dream. Fake it till you make it. And we'll even, what do we call it? The American dream. The problem with dreams is you wake up and you forget them. Or you have nightmares and you wish you could forget them. Most of my life I've had nightmares. So dreams, the whole thing, the reason that we, we call it the American dream, I think is pretty suspect to start with. What is it? It's a dream. You fake it till you make it. And so, of course, there's an inherent level of dishonesty involved. And so immediately what happens? They start attacking people who use these social media platforms for being dishonest. Well, of course they are. Of course they are. That's, what is, that's what's expected of them in the media. So you don't, now you don't criticize them for doing what they're supposed to do on the social media. That's what it requires. And, and you know, people like me who don't use it as much or don't respect it as much, I don't know. But they have no right to go after people for that. They don't. Because, of course, that's what it is. It can be nothing else. But, for me, I'm not so much wishing to come to their defense. I mean, I'm sure they're adults. They can take care of themselves. My speculation is that the reflection in our horror fiction, especially in something like fan fiction, which is very, very close to the pulse of what's current in the psyche of people at the moment. It, it's very up-to-date. Uh, what they're talking about is what people are talking about. It is what people are thinking of, what they're, what they're feeling about, what matters to them. It has to be very, very close to an actual reflection of what's truly going on. And it's not done by an algorithm. It's done by, by feeling. It's done by a trend, something that, that, that it, it seems to be a tendency across platforms of different media. And to me, I speculate that it's being driven by our usage of social media, and it's being driven by the echo chamber that it tends to create. It's being driven by the idea that people are always watching. And it's being driven by the idea that everything is disproportionate, and it always has to be fantastic, and everything always has to be great. I mean, why, you know, the, I've been a horror fan all my life, and you, you, when you hear about the clown, you know, like in It, the clowns are frightening because they're a distortion of, of a happy face. It's something that should make you feel better, but instead you feel worse because the damn thing, it's, 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 it's horrifying. Uh, it's too much. It's disproportionate. You remember we had this trend three or four years ago where there were stories in social media, anecdotal urban legends, of clowns attacking people and killing people or, or chasing them. You know, these people dressed in clown suits charging after people and for a while there was like a frenzy across the whole country where everybody was seeing clowns everywhere they looked and the clowns were always attacking them you know it was right at the same time as the pokemon go come on pokemon go what company what companies were starting to get ready to build their 5g networks even as far back as 2016 please what do companies need to do now to compete in today's marketplace they have to build an algorithm they have to build an algorithm. It's the same principle that we're all engaged in now today, all of us. You build the audience. You build your target before you target them. You create a target. And basically with the algorithm, all you're doing is you're trying to create a target with certain material. If 
I watch something on Netflix. I didn't know this until last week. If you give it a thumbs up or a thumbs down, it, it aids to build the algorithm so the thing knows what to suggest you watch next, according to the material. You put out the material, but you need feedback. And in order to build your audience, because you're building, an, you're not trying to compete for an audience bracket anymore. You're creating an audience. And so you have to know that your stuff's working. You got to know it. So you're building an algorithm and you add, what do you do? Like this content, give me a thumbs up or a thumbs down, ring my bell, you know, so you can get the next one. Subscribe, subscribe, subscribe. You know, you, even, well, for me, the only algorithm I give a damn for is are people downloading these things or not? If they're downloading it, something must be working. If they're not, then I better do something different or stop doing it altogether. And of course, I want to increase the complexity of this eventually, and I want to I want to have a more a higher production value on my content. Um, if I can maintain intellectual standards, though, ultimately that's what I care about most of all, you know. But if I can build uh, uh, build production value over time, actually one day have a studio, you know. Um, but right now, it's 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 suitable. This little iPhone does more than enough uh, for me for the present. You know, but obviously my, my, and I can promise this to you and my audience, uh, I'm going to try to increase the production value over time so that it's more of a higher production value. I mean, I have no illusions about being in the same league as Joe Rogan, okay? But why is his stuff so great? Because it's a very high production value. And he talks to people that matter, that are current. He talks to people about topics that are all a rage right now that are topical and he does it in a way that he's like a friend he's like the guy you know next door the the, the guy you do your fantasy football league with him or something you know and he's a sophisticated man so he's highly intelligent he's like he's like your friend that uh you know that 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 tends to see the world clearly you go to him for advice he seems to have a clue what he's talking about so of course it's going to work if, if suddenly you put him in front of an audience and say, well, today I'm talking to Elon Musk about this, you know, we're, we're, he's on the pulse of things, more so than our, our dying mainstream media. Uh, or or um, one of the other people I listened to said, basically what we're doing is, is it's pirate radio. Uh, Eric Weinstein talked about this. Uh, and I, I, I tend to feel that way about what I'm doing. After all, why call it the rogue philosopher? It's true that, that people <clears throat> gave me that name to go by. And I followed their recommendation. But it's pirate radio. If you're not a pirate, you don't call yourself a rogue. Okay, so of course, this to me, this is like being a pirate radio DJ. It's fun. It can be, it's, it's cool. But I want to improve my, my uh, production value. But in any case, I, I, I suspect... Because it's so responsive to trends. I mean, a lot of the stories lately have had to do something with the COVID, of course, or they've had to, they've, all horror has to deal with isolation in some form or other. But a lot of the stories now are amplified in, in the horror that they're creating, the content, the, the tension in the story is being driven by the quarantine. It's being driven by the breakdown in our society, by, by the changes that are being visited upon us by our reaction to the virus. And, and the increased fear, of course, that's continued to increase over the last few years, where it's, it's been ratcheting up the pressure more and more and more. So for horror fiction, I mean, it's, man, it's your lucky day. If you're, if you're really inspired in writing and doing well with horror fiction, it's your lucky day. I mean, the, 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 the content is infinite. 
the the raw material is infinite the emotion of your audience is is receptive everyone's terrified i mean it, it's it, it and horror is meant for health it's meant for a vaccine in a way i i theorize it's it's as much meant for it we enjoy it because it it helps us damp down what should or might be overwhelming and it makes it something we can deal with and it it helps people in, deal with their fear in a healthy way or their they want the adrenaline like being on a roller coaster Okay, I, I love it. I love horror fiction. That's why in the next few episodes, I'm going to be talking about uh, Gene Thacker, or Eugene Thacker, <clears throat> his philosophical analysis of horror fiction. Like I've said, I, I want to, I'm going to go uh, in the next few hours, maybe later tonight, I'm going to go watch Midsummer. And uh, next episode, I'm going to talk more about, of course, more about Russian Doll and uh, Midsummer. And then you read Eugene Thacker, and uh, <clears throat> eventually... Uh, you know, you see what I can see, what kind of momentum I can get out of out of uh, speculating on other other issues. But in this case, I speculate, and this is apparently in a nutshell what I need to speculate on. The trends in our fiction, our horror fiction, that's all over the internet, creepy pastas, podcasts, short story fiction, is being driven by social media in two topical areas that are that are related to their the content of their monsters, their monstrosities. They watch, and they're always too happy, or they have a face, the smile's too big, or to a point they have no face at all, which, I mean, I, I could go off on that maybe for another 20 minutes, where it's a faceless monster. The way our, our so much of the entities we deal with every day are faceless. You can't even talk to a, a real human being over the phone anymore. Everything's automated. You know, but that's my speculation, which I cannot prove and is untested by statistical analysis or algorithmic analysis. But I suspect that it's the case that these trends in our horror fiction are a direct response to social media, to the idea that everyone is watching or being watched, and to the idea that everyone always has to be so, so happy. Everything is always extraordinary. Everything is a superlative. Everything is fantastic, you know. And that's having a disproportionate effect on our our fiction that will be recognizable maybe 10 or 20 years down the line people can look back at fiction of 2020 or the 20 teens and go hey it was responding to a, a a particular tendency during this time and people hadn't learned yet how to cope with the new invasive or welcome depending uh, idea of social media that everyone is always watching you're watching them. They're watching you. You're recording them. They're recording you. Uh, the idea of everyone is their own uh, television amateur reporter now. Everybody's their own. And that started, obviously, it started in the blogosphere, but, you know, now it's ubiquitous. Everyone is. Everybody can be their own reporter now. Everybody can be their own observer, their own uh, uh, social critic on social trends like I'm doing. Um, and our horror fiction has responded directly to this. And it's being being shaped and is in turn shaping the discourse as well as a direct result of these trends. And how they'll evolve or change, it's hard to say. And people will probably calm down eventually and people won't react as much to all the eyes watching. People will calm down eventually and it, there won't be as much of a necessity for everyone's always superlatively great. Everything's perfect. Everything's fantastic. Everyone is a supermodel. Well, there'll, be, there'll be a trend toward more realism. You know, I think things will, will, will level out. Things always do in one trend or another. They run their course and they level out. When you realize, you know, that you're, you're, you're 
uh, shake a weight or whatever is is a is a a silly trend along with the pet rock. It's better forgotten, but at the time it it was certainly part of a useful evolution in in consciousness or in our understanding of each other. So in any case, <clears throat> it's. I'm going to call that good for this episode now. That's the end of this episode, Rogue Philosopher. Um, if you like what I'm yammering about, give it a go ahead and download it. And tell your friends about it. Spread the word. Um, whoever you can talk to, if what I'm actually saying has some value in terms of uh, academic level, I mean, heck, tell all your friends. If, if it's intellectually satisfying, uh, it's also meant as entertainment. Uh, so, Hopefully this reaches you and it finds you well. And um, give a shout out to um, anybody you notice that that uh, has lobster claws, you know, in any way, shape, or form displayed prevalently. They're members of the esoteric order of the Luciferian lobster. You got to remember this, okay? Lobsters have claws. They crush things. And my final reassurance, as always, we will meet again under the shadow of the lily.